the mechanics of an internal succession don't need to be overly complex, but I will say that an internal succession is a challenge to pull off without some basic building blocks in place and without the ability for the parties involved to compromise. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is David Seeley. David has over 20 years experience in M&A, management consulting, and financial services. For his buy side and sell side clients, David serves as a champion and advocate as he shepherds them through their complex transactions. He has authored numerous white papers on the subjects of mergers and acquisitions, valuation, and succession planning. He also speaks regularly on those topics at conferences and industry events. Prior to founding Advice Dynamic Partners, David worked for Pershing Advisor Solutions, a division of BNY Mellon, where he provided consulting and asset custody solutions to registered investment advisors. He's also a, a Deloitte, Deloitte alumni, and he's got an MBA from Columbia, impressive guy. And listen, I've known uh, David for uh, about a decade uh, in and around the uh, RIA space, and he's, uh, he's a phenomenal um, uh, player in the space. He does a lot of deals for a lot of people, and he and I have uh, you know, uh, run into each other around the deal circuit and around the RIA circuit. So I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you on the show, David. Corey, that was a great introduction, and I uh, didn't deserve all of that, but thank you so much, and really good to be uh, back with you. Uh, this podcast series is fantastic. I've listened to all of your episodes, and uh, thankful to be part of it. Well, well, that's good. I appreciate that, and, and I'm thrilled to, to have you on. It's, uh, it's if anything, uh, overdue. Uh, so, uh, so listen, let's... Um, Let's jump in. And before we start talking about, you know, your deals and everything you do for folks and your experience and the wisdom you're going to share, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid. Um, what did you want to be? Because my guess is uh, doing what you do in the RA space was probably not on your mind as an eight or 10 year old, but correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> as a 10 year old, um, probably not. I mean, as a 10 year old, uh, Probably Major League Baseball player was top on the list. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> passionate about baseball then and passionate about it now. And, you know, I, I hung up my cleats after a couple of seasons of high school ball, uh, realizing that the writing was on the wall. But uh, if I could wave a magic wand or if I could have back then, it would have been an MLB player. Um, which, position, which position and which team? I was an undersized pitcher with low velocity <laughs> <laughs> and a, uh, a mildly successful curveball. Uh, uh, I love it. So, so when you envisioned you were, you were a pitcher for, for what, what team do you root for? Oh, that would have been the San Francisco Giants, my friend. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah, of course. home baby. <laughs> um, but uh, that, those dreams didn't pan out. Um, and it wasn't until a long time into the future uh, after that that, that uh, this sort of vision sort of uh, 
came to be. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for the last 11 years, meaning M&A advisory uh, for this company. But, uh, you know, when you're 10 or 20, or for me, even 30 and 40, really didn't know where it was all headed. But I'm thrilled to be in this industry. I love working with RIAs. We do some really interesting stuff now as the M&A market has evolved and the complexities have increased. It, it gets it makes it a lot more fun and interesting these days. But, uh, you know, a lot, lot, of, lot of story there, a lot of backstory there that we can get to at some point. Uh, that's great. And, uh, and so, so what uh, I know, you know, you've obviously, you've, you've owned this company for that period of time, but um, what was your first real business? However you define that? Was there, was there anything you did with, whether it was when you were younger or whatever in business, uh, you know, as a business um, uh, during your career prior to owning your current company? I mean, other than the uh, stereotypical lemonade stands, paper mm -hmm. routes, and all of those things as a kid, um, in college, I interned with a stockbroker uh, uh, for about a year uh, during school. Kind of got a taste of that advisor mindset. This is back in, in uh, 1987 at UC Santa Barbara. And, uh, you know, there are things about what that guy was doing for clients that I thought was pretty cool. And there were certain things that I felt were not very cool that he was doing and, and the like. So I, I sort of jumped into this and, and understood the world of the entrepreneur who serves clients a little bit back in, in college. But uh, to be also very transparent, my father, uh, Dick Selig, was a 35-plus year advisor uh, in San Francisco. He was a wirehouse advisor for all of those years. And I really learned about this business through him, at least, you know, through that lens, the lens of the wirehouse advisor. And, you know, flash forward to about 2006, when uh, I was done with Deloitte and Touche and sort of transitioning to, to uh, Pershing, my father had a, a, a life event that took him out of, of the stockbroker world. He uh, had a pretty serious medical event mm. and he, he had to retire on the spot basically. And, 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 you know, to put it in our parlance with no succession plan. Right. Right. So that really opened my eyes to, you know, what could happen to advisors without a succession plan. Cause it happened to my father. He, uh, we had to negotiate an exit package pretty quickly for him and didn't have advisors that could pick up his fairly sizable book. But, uh, you know, that was another catalyst that got me into this, uh, into this business. Maybe I didn't realize it at the time in 2006, but uh, it's all part of the, the backstory that I was alluding to. Yeah, so that's really interesting to me because sort of, you know, knowing our listeners don't know uh, the rest of the evolution from there, but I know more of it. And it's, you know, sort of it's really interesting to me that at a time when you were moving over to a, 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 a custodian who's obviously working, you know, to custody assets in the independent space where, you know, we talk about the ability to build enterprise value and control your own succession and do all those kind of deals. That happens to your father, and then you, you know, you spend some time doing custody, and then at some point, and I want to hear 
about this, you know, you were inspired to strike it on your own. So, uh, yeah, talk, talk a little bit more about that evolution. We'll build up to what you're doing now. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> you said that uh, when I was a 10-year-old, I probably didn't know that I wanted to serve RIAs. Um, that, that was true. Uh, and then flash forward to when I worked for uh, Pershing, I remember vividly, you know, coming into that custody environment. Uh, it was new territory for me. I, uh, I guess a headhunter found me and, and, and I was recruited to be in YML in Pershing. I remember vividly being in the, their Jersey City headquarters interviewing for my position and having boned up on the RIA industry and trying to understand the dynamics. I guess I'm smart in my interview. <laughs> I didn't know what an RIA was. And I, and this is truth be told, I, I referred to, throughout my interview to RIAs as RIAs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I kept talking, you know, I was, I was being real smart about RIAs and growth challenges and the fragmentation of the industry and all these things that I boned up on. Uh, it wasn't until afterwards that uh, the, the guy who interviewed me, a wonderful guy at Pershing, let me know, oh, by the way, they're not called RIAs, they're RIAs. So, <laughs> But you got the position anyway, so that's pretty impressive. Despite, the, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> despite all that, I got the job. And, um, you know, and the evolution sort of unfolded from there, where, um, you know, I, I learned about the world of the RIA, strategic opportunities for RIAs as they grow and the, the, the promise that's in front of them and the ability to expand their business. It's a, it's a great business. Um, but I also learned about the challenges, right? The challenges around succession, the challenges around growth, right? You know, if you take a, a survey of 100 sort of mid-sized RIAs, you probably find that the, the vast majority are growing at, at, at low single-digit organic growth rates. Um, they're growing, but you know the best of breed grow very quickly. The, the, the run of the mill RIA isn't growing so quickly. Right. And I also, you know, understood and learned about the, the challenges around achieving scale. And those are some of the three, you know, largest takeaways that I had from my time at Pershing was, you know, these businesses are poised to do great things, but you know, such a fragmented industry. And a lot of folks sort of trying to achieve scale, chasing the same, you know, middle and back office functions as their neighbors down the hallway. Um, and, you know, flash forward to after I left Pershing, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I, and I started consulting for one of the large aggregators, one that we read about all the time in the news. Mm -hmm. And started, you know, started doing some buy side advisory work for them, meeting with seller targets that they were courting, and trying to assess fit, performing some valuation work, things like that. And that over that nine month assignment, working for one of uh, our industry's most well known aggregators, um, I just, you know, the light bulb truly went on. That. You know, these guys are doing really well. They've got an interesting mousetrap. 
as a, as a good buyer, good platform, but they're not the only show in town. So I sort of switched my thinking back then. Um, this is in uh, 2008, 2009. Started thinking, you know, this is actually my first client. Mm. So uh, who's going to be my second client? And third and fourth, et cetera. And that's when I rebranded, launched the, the company at Vice Dynamics Partners, you know, and, uh, and incorporated and, and have been doing M&A advisory and succession planning for the industry ever since. So about 11 years. So, yeah, so it's great because, you know, a lot of people look, I mean, you, you made that uh, transition from being a consultant to actually building a real business, which is you know, an interesting parallel, right? Because in the RA industry, we talk about people moving from a practice to building a real business that can have enterprise value that is not as dependent upon them and, you know, and, and which they have the potential to scale. And uh, so there's definitely, you know, some parallels there. I agree. There, there is a parallel there. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, I've been mildly successful over the last decade or so. Um, and, you know, I think the other parallel, though, you know, my, my business is still relatively small. We have a small team of M&A advisors and consultants here in San Francisco. We've got a relationship with Park Sutton Advisors in New York. So we collaborate on deals and, uh, and best practices. But, you know, the other parallel is that we're in a, in a people business, just like our RIA clients are. It's really not just about delivering professional services, but it's doing some really good listening and understanding the people side of the equation on succession and, and M&A and really sort of parsing the, uh, uh, through the noise to find the signal and come up with solutions that you know, are really client-centric. Our clients are RIAs. And they've got goals and objectives for their businesses. And our job is to help them sort through their options and execute on, on a good, inorganic strategy. So that's, that's another parallel as well. So you and I were talking a little bit before we went on air here, uh, and you know, uh, here, and we were catching up. And, and um, you know, one of the things that you were telling me about is sort of, you know, how you're uh, business has evolved uh, is sort of in line with what's evolving in the industry. So, uh, you know, maybe let's do this, you know, because uh, I think it would be a great way for people to get to know you, but also for uh, people to really understand that evolution in the RA industry, you know, uh, because when, you know, in terms of what you were doing a lot of 10, 11 years ago and how that's evolved over time and how that's affected the type of work you do, the type of clients you're working with, because, Yes, I mean, I think it's still somewhat of a fragmented in, uh, industry, but certainly back then it was much more. There's definitely much more consolidation now and, and money coming into the space and, and various types of, you know, more options and et cetera. So, um, yeah, so why don't you take us through sort of uh, the, the combined evolution of the industry and your firm, which have been, you know, paralleled over the last decade? Sure. Um, the the you know, when I started a little over 10 years ago, or actually it's, it's 11 years, this, we're recording this in May, and uh, come end of May, early June, that's kind of mark the 11 year mark. Um, you know, the, the succession challenge was in, in the fore, 
for sure, um, as it is today. You know, I don't think the statistics around percentage of firms that a, a viable succession plan has changed that much. Yeah. The the you know back then it was somewhere in the you know fifteen to twenty twenty two percent range firms had documented and viable succession plans. That's probably about the same today. Um, and so so the the statistics on succession probably hasn't changed. What has changed is and evolved is the options available to those that are seeking. A succession partner. Back, you know, a decade or more ago, if you wanted to monetize your business, there were very few options. The, 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 the most obvious being sell to a bank, and you know, others like me have talked about this, I'm sure, before and, and continue to. But the, the, the options back then were limited to a bank. You had, um, you know. Uh, NFP potentially as an aggregator. Focus was new on the scene as an aggregator or an investor in cash flows. Uh, they were pretty nascent back then, uh, and, and so the options were were few to to get good monetization for a business. And you know that has evolved over the years. The options in terms of the types of partners, the types of bar, uh, buyers has expanded from you know, partnering with a local RIA to partnering with an RIA that is perhaps private equity backed, meaning a platform RIA that's got a lot of capital and a really good infrastructure, no shortage of choices there, to if you're large enough, not just getting on the radar screen of a bank, if you wanted to sell your you want to sell your business, but to all sorts of sponsors that range primarily in terms of the duration of their desired investment. So there's a range of sponsors out there from private equity firms with short investment timelines to private equity firms with kind of mid-duration timelines, seven to ten years, to more groups that are offering sources of uh, permanent capital and permanent capital can mean 15 to 20 or more years uh, in terms of an investment timeline. So it's, it's kind of, it might be ironic how, how that the, the buyer landscape has evolved and, and afforded RIAs more choices. The irony is that the more choices they have, the more complex it might become and the more they might need help navigating those complexities and those choices. And that's really, Corey, how our business has evolved. Um, it's we need to stay ahead of that landscape of choices, that landscape of platforms and business models. Uh, and we help our clients those who are, of course, on the sell side, navigate those choices, articulate their value to those buyers, to those choices, and then help our clients make the right decision about who to partner with. And, and that's, that, that's, that's, that's a lot of how our business has evolved. Great. M&A deal-making that we do. Um, 
and and it kind of mirrors how the industry has evolved. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you a question in that regard because there are so many more external succession options like you just described these days. Um, and so I want to get your view on internal succession options. And, you know, if you speak to consultants and investment bankers, everybody's got an opinion on this in the space and, uh, you know, on how um, realistic or how uh, good a, a potential internal succession option uh, is. And obviously with more external succession options, uh, you know, maybe uh, people have more choices now, but one of them is an internal deal. And what are your thoughts? Uh, are you seeing a decrease in internal deals, are you seeing, you know, a lot of people think those are hard to do, right? The next generation may not have money. Talk to us a lot about internal succession as, a, as one thing on the menu for these well, uh, advisors. Yeah, you know, that is definitely high on the menu, at least the menu that most advisors would you know, prefer. And I said before, there's this sort of pervasive statistic where maybe 20% of firms have what we'll call a viable documented internal succession plan. We can go into what viable means a little later, but contrast that with other statistics, up to 80 or sometimes more percent of firms, when, when asked, what is your preferred long-range succession option, they say internal succession. So therein lies the challenge. 20% of firms are really able to do an internal succession, while 80% of firms say they prefer to do it. Um, huge gap there. So, so you know, the, the, the mechanics of an internal succession don't need to be overly complex, but I will say that an internal succession is a challenge to pull off without some basic building blocks in place. And without the ability for the parties involved to compromise, because almost by definition, internal succession is going to require that the founding generation parts with the equity of their firm at some form of a discount from modest to extreme, depending on the degree of capitalization of their next generation. So, you know, there, there's always this interplay. There's a tension between the buyers and sellers of an RIA when it's an internal, an internal context where the, the, you know, the price really becomes an issue. There's so many other things related to this around you know, how do you finance that internal succession? So many ways to skin that cap and... And, and, and no shortage of other things that we look at around a firm's readiness to execute on an internal plan. Yeah, and it's been interesting there because there are, a, you know, I, I remember not that long ago, uh, there was, uh, you know, in, in general, there's more money coming into the industry for M&A, for uh, expansion, et cetera, um, but, and also for internal succession, right? I mean, not that long ago, I mean, it was 
it was near impossible to finance internal succession. And oh, so I remember those days well. Right, right. Well. And, and so not, not only did that affect purchase price, but it also affected, you know, maybe longer payout periods. And then sometimes the uh, the older generation would say, wait, you're just going to pay me out of my cash flow. Why should, maybe I should just continue to own the firm. You know, now right. there are at least a few more options coming in, right? There certainly are. There, there are a handful of lending institutions out there, really good quality lending institutions that, that finally understand our space and understand that this isn't your run-of-the-mill cash flow lending situation, right? Because that's, that's the challenge. You're lending, you're lending against cash flow and, uh, you know, intangible assets rather than hard assets. And, and that historically has precluded banks and others from, from financing internal succession deals or financing M&A for that matter. So, yeah, there are options out there now. And we help our clients navigate those financing options, but still, you know, the, the the spread between bid and ask on these firms can be pretty high. So, you know, a lot of what we do is is uh, help firms sort out that middle ground and and achieve some kind of a compromise. And that compromise can come in the form of a change in valuation or a different kind of payout structure or deal structure or how the firm, you know, how a firm is uh, financing a deal, right? There could be a, uh, there could be a price for an internal succession. That's one price. If the, the seller finances most of the deal, it may be a, a, a different price. If the buyers finance the deal by getting external uh, lending, Right. So, all of these all of these variables come into play when we're trying to to crack the succession code for our RIA clients. That's great. So, in addition to succession, which we've been focused on a little bit here, right? You know, uh, w- one of the other things we see is that uh, there's money coming to the space and deals getting done, also just for other reasons, including just scale and growth, right? So, you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing there? Yeah, that's that's a really exciting uh, element of our market now. It's it's the and I've spent a lot of time already just talking about selling and, and uh, those that are seeking liquidity. It's much more nuanced than that these days. Um, yes, there are firms out there with an older generation one with no internal succession options, and they're looking for liquidity, so they, they, they find a buyer that will get them that liquidity. That's not the entire story much anymore, though, right? For firms that have achieved some sort of size, and and why don't we say, you know, half a billion in assets and up, of which there are thousands and thousands of firms. Um, they're realizing that a billion or a half a billion is, is not as large as they once thought it was. And that scale, to achieve scale, may not even happen at a billion in assets. And I, and I would tend to agree with that, right? You know, that, that Mason-Dixon line is, is maybe at two billion. Um, or even higher. Um, so firms that are, are entrepreneurial have got a youngish management team in place that have not yet achieved scale are more and more often, and we're seeing this more and more often, are seeking an outside partner to, uh, to sell to, quite frankly, to achieve scale, to help them achieve growth, um, and of course, to solve for eventual 
succession. So, and one other thing that's that's very interesting these days that you know, probably wasn't quite uh, as pervasive uh, uh, two years ago is, you know, we, we often think of the options available to our ideas as being either an internal succession or an internal growth plan where everything stays independent versus an external plan where you're, quote, selling out. It's not that cut and dry anymore either. In the last couple of years, what we're seeing more and more of is those firms that are seeking to, one, achieve internal succession, meaning equitize the next generation. Two, achieve some scale. We want to get from a half a billion to a billion. We feel like we can get some good margin in a billion, good platform for future growth. Three, growth itself, right? We, 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 in order to get to a billion and beyond, we need some sort of organic growth engine that we don't quite have right so these firms that once thought that the only option it was a binary sort of choice either stay internal or sell out externally there's a hybrid approach now that is much more common than it was again just as short as two two years ago which is bring on an outside partner sell a portion of your firm if that's the way you structure it and, and that outside partner will enable you to achieve succession, growth, and scale. So you are remaining independent, so to speak, but within an outside firm, whether that's an investor or another platform firm, no shortage of choices, as we said, to help, uh, help those, those, that firm achieve their long-range vision. I, I agree. That's a big evolution because it was, yeah, it was only a few years ago where, you know, you either had the firms that were investing were taking either 100 percent or at least at least majority control or or in some cases 100 percent, you know, equity and, and, and you know, and a, and a monetary split with some contractual rights to have certain management control. Um, but they weren't, you know, or there was some service provider type platforms that, uh, that, you know, provided services on a contract basis. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of, there weren't, in fact, there were hardly any, uh, if any, options not that long ago of people who were taking minority stakes in companies where that's you could right. have sort of the best of both worlds. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a big evolution. And, and it's, a, it's a quickly changing one. I mean, there's more than, you know, there's, there's several options in that regard now, which are very interesting. There are several options, several options in terms terms of uh, investors who are willing to uh, take a minority interest in an RIA, the RIA has to be large enough um, for them to, you know, to write a big enough check and to, to uh, make it worth their while, these investors. But uh, assuming the RIA is sufficiently large, uh, no shortage of options. And we, we, we've got at least 15 or more investor options, those that are looking to put some capital work and maybe make a minority investment in an RIA for the long run. We've cataloged at least 15 groups that fit into that category. And this is interesting. Just yesterday, Corey, uh, one of our clients out here on the West Coast, it's, a, uh, it's an RIA with somewhere between a billion and two billion in assets. Um, they're looking to bring on an outside investor for all the reasons we've described succession, growth, and scale. And I, I approached one of my 
So one of my buddies in the industry who's the head of a, a very well-known source of permanent capital said, hey, what, would you be willing to, um, to look at this opportunity? And his question to me was, well, how much uh, equity are they selling? And I said, truthfully, it could be up to 80%, but we need to retain a 20% carve-out for management. And he said, ah, that might be a little too much risk for us. Mm. We, we, would, we, would, we would prefer like 30 to 40% at the most, at least at this stage of the game. So, I mean, go figure, right? Go figure. I mean, who would have thunk it five, 10 years ago that somebody would say, yeah, this is it's too big, too much risk for us. <laughs> exactly. And listen, fueling deals, listeners. For those of you who, uh, you know, may not know this industry or even you know investing quite as well as uh, David and I, know, you know, I want to make something clear that 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 um, you know you may not realize why that's so funny and why it's so funny is because uh, you know it was totally the opposite not that long ago when nobody was interested in being in. A, you know, they, they looked at it being more. Really, you know, wait, we're not going to have control over this thing. You want us to write a big check to <laughs> exactly. take, a, take a take a minority position where you know we have we have, we have a limited say. You know, maybe just some major items where we have some veto rights, but otherwise we have no say. Uh, so, so to have somebody on the other side saying, "Hey, no, I don't want that much of your company," is a is a real shift. Yeah, it is a real shift. And, and it speaks to at least the perceived um, maturity of our industry, right? Because the, 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 the thinking behind what we just described is, hey, we're an investor. We don't want to run this company. We trust you guys, meaning the, the, the young management team. We trust you guys to keep running it well and, and the like. If things go badly, we don't want to own this whole thing. We just we just want our minority stake, and we just want the cash flow. You know, we just want to clip our coupons for the next 10, 20 years. That, that's it. So, <laughs> that's right. It's so interesting. And you're right. It is a maturing thing because, listen, if you look at, at investment in other industries, venture capital, et cetera, whatever, you know, you'll when you ask them what they invest in, a lot of people who are less uh, familiar – think that people invest in great ideas and that's a factor or people invest in uh, you know some track history which could be a factor in certain industries and other industries it doesn't make a difference the biggest thing they invest in is management in other industries right that's you know if, if you have a great management team and and you know, certainly if you have a management team in other space you know tech's a great area right i also do you know deals in tech and you know Texas is a classic area when if you have a management team that has had a successful exit or two they'll be able to raise capital you know almost it wouldn't matter what they're doing next. The, the idea of the company doesn't, you know, because people invest in management. And in our, you know, in the RIA industry where, you know, I do uh, probably about half my work and you do, I think, all, you know, pretty much all your stuff. Um, you know, it, it's it's been, uh, and in any less mature industry, it is much more the opposite because you don't have, you know, in the earlier days, you didn't have as big of firms. You didn't have as professionally managed firms. And, and so, so the investors who were coming in were saying, no, wait a second, you know, I'm an aggregator. I'm more of an aggregator. I'm not, I'm not going to be just an investor that's investing in a, in a management team and a business model and, and, you know, and systems that I believe in and can pour some fuel onto. But nowadays it's becoming much more aligned and more mature, you know, it's what happens in other more mature industries. I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, amazing what's happened over the last even decade or so, Corey, where you know, even the, the more successful firms back then, 
you know, those that were in that, you know, approaching a billion in assets, which a decade ago was huge, right? They were in essence run by their, the practitioners, right? Maybe it's an ensemble type of, of uh, construct where two, three, four co-founders ran money, ran clients, and happened to run the business as well, right? And, and maybe they weren't so adept at, at that last thing, right? They're, they're good at the first two. And flash forward to today that um, what, what does really scale mean? Well, scale means it has to do with margins. There are connotations around margins and the ability to, to grow without having to layer on uh, too much more overhead. That's certainly an, a, a textbook definition of scale. But another is you know, you've achieved a size where you can afford to and want to bring on professional management. Those that, those that are going to run the firm and not run clients, not run money, but you know, create an amazing operational infrastructure, create a great technology stack, something that is attractive to younger advisors to, to join, et cetera, and you know, put, put, in, put in some growth programs and marketing initiatives, you know, professional marketing people, professional management and operations people. And when you have that team in place, to your point, Corey, that's when you get on the radar screen of really good investors who are going to throw a high multiple at you and take you from, you know, if it's a billion to three, four, five billion and beyond uh, using their capital. So, you know, no shortage of interesting things happening out there in the investor landscape. Um, the industry certainly has evolved. But that said, the there are thousands and thousands of firms with less than a billion in assets, less than 500 million in assets. And, you know, there are lessons to be learned in all of this for them as well. And, and you know, that's what, that's what keeps us busy. And I'm sure you know, with your uh, law practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, David, there, there's like a hundred more questions that I want to ask you and so much more that I know you can provide an audience and we're going to have to have you back because, you know, the one thing about a podcast is that you don't go for hours. <laughs> so uh, we're running up against time here. So I'm going to, uh, you know, I, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, let people know where they can reach you and then ask you a last question and we'll close this time out. But, uh, but boy, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to, get you back on at some point we we'll drill down into some of these structures talk about the mistakes and and the things people do right um so we'll have to do that next time so before i ask the last question i'm sure people are going to want to you know you, you have so much experience in this industry and and you know uh, i i'd love to see how uh, how your co companies continue to evolve and keep up with what's uh, what's going on and uh and whether it's um you know, a connection with helping people put together deals on the buy or sell side evaluation or uh, advice and strategic consulting or introductions to, you know, funding sources, et cetera. There's a lot of value that you provide. So uh, what, I'm sure people are going to want to find out more about you. Where can they go to do that? Well, the, the website is a mouthful. It's advicedynamicspartners.com. And you can always reach me at dselig at advicedynamicspartners.com. I think even David at advicedynamicspartners.com will work too. Um, I'm on Twitter, <laughs> Twitter uh, at ADP underscore CEO. Try to tweet actively and um, 
share what I'm seeing in the industry over Twitter. That's been a good, a good, uh, a good source for uh, exchanging information. But uh, hey, Corey, I, I do look forward to coming back. This is a conversation that is evolving. You know, what, what a great format that you've provided on a platform to get some information out there. Uh, great job on this podcast series. Well, I appreciate that, David, and it's been just a thrill to have you on. And uh, here's my last question that I ask every guest. Uh, and, you know, you know me well enough to know that authenticity is one of my <laughs> highest values. And yes. I, you know, it's the reason why my book is called Authentic Negotiating. So I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, authenticity for me, it's not about external morals. It's about alignment with with what, you know, inner truth, with what our purpose is, what we're here to do. And uh, I just would love to get your last thoughts on, you know, whether that, you know, how that impacts how you run your business, how you advise clients, how does authenticity play into what you do? I think that's such a good question. And I think it's probably multifaceted, but to keep it kind of straight into the point, when we're advising clients, we recognize that, you know, the, the transaction whether you're a two or three hundred million dollar RIA, or whether you're a two or three billion dollar RIA, it gets emotional pretty quickly, and there's a lot of pride of ownership on both sides. So, you know what we try to do, and, and maybe this is how we're authentic, if you will, is try to be incredibly direct with people, while being respectful about you know acknowledging. The fear, acknowledging their sources of anxiety in M&A, which there always is, but trying to point out, you know, where we're seeing maybe they're, uh, you know, contradicting their vision or, or maybe they're, they're not being true to what their long-range goals are by uh, kind of being mired in these short-term worries. So I guess my clients would, would say, hey, Maybe David gives us great advice, but he's also very direct and to the point and kind of keeps us on track. And I don't, I don't see other, any other way of doing it. Um, so if authenticity means being direct and not being around the bush and uh, while like acknowledging that everything is emotional in this business that we do, that's, that's probably how I would summarize it. That's great, David. Listen, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And back at you, Corey. Thank you so much. And thank you, Feeling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor. Other than that, the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.